0: I grew up with church music, ringing in my ears and running through my veins. My mom often played piano at our little church. My dad usually was leading the singing. I learned to sing harmony by reading parts out of the hymnal. I'm kind of a church music nerd. And sometime in my late elementary years, a new song entered into the rotation in our church singing. And from the first time I heard it, I was all in. It had been written in the 60s, but it was gaining popularity and finding its way into church music all across the land over the next couple of decades. And I thought it was such a good song. Part of it was because maybe it was the only song we ever sang in a minor key in church, and so it felt very mysterious, almost edgy. But then, toward the end of the chorus, it landed on its relative major key for just a second, turning your ear toward hope and resolution before it quietly faded back into mystery. It was just different from all the other hymns that we sang back then. I'm sure Walter will weave it in somewhere between now and the end of the service, so just keep your ears open. But every verse ended with this refrain. Sing it if you know it. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Okay, if you didn't already think I was a dork, now you know I'm for sure a dork. But that chorus was also the name of the song. They'll know we are Christians by our love. And it's supposed to be the truest thing about us as people who follow Jesus. The lyric reflects something Jesus says to his disciples shortly before he goes to the cross. He tells them that their new commandment is to love one another. That is how people will know who they are and who he is, by how they love one another. Love is the trademark of a Christ follower. Above all else, it's what we should be known for. It seems so simple, it's such a little word. And yet, I'm not sure that love is primarily what Christians have been known for throughout the ages. There's plenty of hate in the world, plenty of division, and sometimes those are much easier for us. Love may sound simple, it's the hardest work we will ever do And so today we begin our Summer of Love. I hope that over these next several weeks, we can dive in to love, to take it out of the theoretical and to bring it into the practical, to explore our scriptures and learn what love can really look like in our lives. What are the real, tangible ways we can love others to the point that we become known for it? We'll begin today with the passage that is the centerpiece for this whole series. It's known as the greatest commandment. And it's worth memorizing over the course of these next few weeks. We even have a way that you can add it to your phone screen. You can find that on our website, our social media, our worship page online. But Luke chapter 10, verse 27 says this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor, as yourself. That verse doesn't just come out of nowhere, though. Jesus is in a conversation with a legal expert, a lawyer, an expert in Torah, the law. And as Jesus does many times when he's being tested or when he's debating, he turns to a parable, a story to get his point across. One thing I love about parables is that they don't do all the work for you, but they invite our imaginations and ourselves into the story. We're not expected to identify with just one character's point of view. Instead, there's the possibility of us finding ourselves in every character we meet along the way. So I'll read the whole passage now, but we'll comb back through it again to see what we have to learn as we step into those different shoes of each person we meet along the way. We'll start in Luke 10, verse 25. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by to the other side. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is probably a familiar story to many of you. Even outside the church, Good Samaritan has some brand recognition. There are hospitals and nonprofits and even laws bearing the name of this story. The Samaritan over time has taken a central place in the story so we're naturally invited to find ourselves in his shoes first and we will get there. But the Samaritan is not where Jesus' listeners would have found themselves in the parable. And the other characters tell us a lot about ourselves too, if we listen. Take for example, the lawyer, the legal expert who comes to question Jesus. He's not in the parable itself, but he's the one asking the questions. So for any of us who have ever had questions we wanted to ask Jesus or struggled to understand something in scripture or wanted to be certain of our particular way of reading the Bible, we might have something to learn about ourselves from the lawyer. A few words in his part of the story stand out to me. First is the word test. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus, verse 25 says. It was common for students and rabbis and scholars to banter or even hotly debate back and forth about interpretation of the scriptures, the law. That's part of what was happening here. But this particular lawyer doesn't seem to be coming to Jesus with pure curiosity and benevolence. Luke is clear. He stands up to test Jesus. This is the same word that is used when the devil tests Jesus in the wilderness. The lawyer isn't coming to learn. He's coming to win, to leverage his own understanding and knowledge over the teachers. The second word I notice is justify. The lawyer has asked Jesus a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus in true rabbinic form answers that question with another question, what is written in the law? He's no dummy, Jesus knows that the lawyer knows. The lawyer gives the correct answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, yep, you got it, go do that. But in verse 29, the lawyer says, wanting to justify himself, he asks Jesus, And who is my neighbor? There is so much packed into this little sentence. What are we trying to do when we justify ourselves? When my children have smushed blue Play Doh into the very depths of the carpet where it has dried and cemented into a crusty blob, I hear no apology. I see no remorse, no diligent attempt to rectify the situation. I only hear, mama, we were just trying to make a pancake. As if I do not feed them real food on a very regular basis. There are much more serious examples, of course. Each of us have them in our own hearts. When we justify ourselves, our actions, our thoughts, we are trying to convince ourselves and others that we are right. That what we have done or believed or said is okay. The lawyer wants to know and for others to hear just how smart he is about the law and how precise he is in his interpretation. When he asks the question, who is my neighbor? He's asking Jesus to give him a specific answer, a checklist, a way to know in black and white who he is commanded to love. And then by default, who he is not. Amy Jill Levine, a New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt, says about this verse, "'To ask who is my neighbor' is a polite way of asking who is not my neighbor, or who does not deserve my love, or whose lack of food and shelter can I ignore, or whom can I hate?" The lawyer, when we step in his shoes, makes us stop and think about what questions we're asking and why. Perhaps we've never asked questions like his. Perhaps we've never tried to limit God's commandments with our own comfort. Perhaps we've never been more interested in our own stuff than in God's stuff. Perhaps we've never been more preoccupied with being correct than being curious. But just in case we have, Jesus has a story for us. A man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and was attacked. He was bruised up pretty badly and left to die. We sort of gloss over this traveler because he seems more like the object of the story than the subject, he's unconscious most of the time. But Jesus was appealing to the experience of his audience. Many of them had probably walked this very road. It was a dangerous road. Traveling alone came with risks, like getting mugged or killed for the very cloak off your back. The first listeners found their place in this parable with the man lying in the ditch. He was the character who was most like them. And he is the one who reveals to Jesus' audience and to us our biases. The wounded man himself has no care or concern for who is going to stop and help him. He's unconscious. But the listener who isn't unconscious but imagines themselves in his place, certainly has expectations about the good and the bad people in this story. We, as the listeners, want the priest or the Levite to help, the holy people, the leaders of our community who are very much like us, the fine upstanding people who live by the law and who are guided by compassion. They are obviously the ones who will help this man. They are the neighbors. But we do not expect is for the person least like us to be the neighbor. The lawyer didn't expect this answer. The people didn't either. Their bias against Samaritans ran deep. If Jesus were going to name any group of people as the people you didn't have to love, it would have been the Samaritans, which is precisely why he picked one to be the hero. Our biases toward and against other people affect how we interact with them and think about them. That's hardly news. Many times our biases are known, they are shared. We don't even try to hide them in this day and age. We see this along ethnic lines all too painfully. I read an article just this week about the fear that many Asian Americans have right now as society opens back up. They're not sending their kids back to school. They're not using public transportation. They're continuing to work from home because of the astronomical rise in violence toward them since the pandemic began. One man even told the story of how in March of 2020, a woman at the Reno Tahoe airport spat in his face and told him to go back to where he came from in the airport. He described a feeling of helplessness that he'd never felt before and he's still reluctant to go back to airports to return to his busy travel schedule. When biases are known and when we let them take root, they can quickly turn to hate. But biases can also be unconscious to us. They operate within us and can show up in our worldview and our actions without us even realizing it. We dismiss or overlook or categorize people as less than or dangerous or to Jesus' point, not worthy of being our neighbor. But if someone were to point that out to us, we would deny it fully. Our biases are the things we don't think we think. We see an example of this, even in the title of this parable. The phrase Good Samaritan is how we know the story. That phrase is one that Jesus never said. History has inserted the adjective good, and it's stuck. But it's convicting to us if we read it carefully. What are we really saying when we say good Samaritan or good Methodist or good Muslim or good immigrant? We're singling out the good one, implying that all the rest are not good. The bias against the whole is revealed in our description of the one. I found some really helpful resources to explore this idea of unconscious bias. Harvard University has perhaps the most well-known free tool as part of their ongoing research. If you have a moment this afternoon, that's a great resource to sort of dive into your own mind and see what biases you might uncover. The United Methodist Church has also developed an online self-guided course called What We Don't Think We Think. You can find access to both of those on the worship page of our website today if you'd like to dive a little deeper into what the injured man in the ditch has to teach us about who we consider to be our neighbor and who we don't. The priest is the next person to journey down this road, and he, of course, is the one that we think will help. The Levite follows him, also an obvious neighbor to the wounded Jewish man, and yet both cross over to the other side, turning a blind eye to the needs right in front of them. These are men leaving the temple in Jerusalem, having finished their religious duties for the month. They both know the law, inside and out. They both know what Torah requires of them in matters of life and death of utmost importance in the law is the saving of life when it is threatened. This supersedes any other law, purity laws, ritual cleansing laws, Sabbath laws even. And secondarily, if the life has been lost, tending to the body becomes a sacred task in Jewish tradition. This is sacred and holy work that we see even in the modern age. After the September 11 attacks in 2001, members of the Jewish community in New York City stood vigil around ground zero for days until every last body was removed and laid to rest. The priest and Levite knew what Torah would have them do for the man in the ditch, to care for him if he was alive and to tend to his body if he were dead. They simply chose not to look so that they would not see. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached about this passage and probably has the best and most human explanation for what happened. He said, I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible these men were afraid. And so the first question that they asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? When we step into the priest and the Levite's shoes, we are invited to reckon with our own fears, our tendency to protect ourselves. Do we focus on the risks to us when we turn and look at the family struggling to keep food on the table after a really tough year of unemployment? or fixate on what it might cost us to reach out and help a friend at school who has gotten in over her head with drugs? Do we worry what we might lose when we stop to have a conversation with someone who's asking for money or food? The priest and the Levite challenge us to stop making the situation about ourselves and to pay attention to the person who really needs something. Finally, we step into the Samaritan's shoes. My favorite thing about the Samaritan entering the scene is the shock value that Jesus employed. In good storytelling fashion, he was invoking the form of three. We all know this form, his listeners did too. Three characters attempt to get something right. The first two fail, obviously the third will succeed. We've got the Three Little Pigs, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, the Three Billy Goats Gruff. We've got the Back to the Future trilogy. Okay, maybe that's not a great example, but you get the idea. In common Jewish story form, the priest came first, the Levite came second. Everyone expected that the third person to come along then would be an Israelite, someone just like them. The everyday, ordinary Israelite would be the hero, the one to get it right. They would be the right kind of neighbor to the wounded man. I can imagine the murmuring and the jaw dropping amongst the crowd when Jesus says, but a Samaritan while traveling came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. Women are elbowing their husbands awake. The fishermen are cleaning out their ears to make sure they heard correctly. Did he say Samaritan, American? What is he talking about? No one saw the Samaritan coming in this story because as we've said, Samaritans were deeply despised by the Jews and the feeling was mutual. Both had committed egregious acts of violence and exclusion toward one another throughout history. And Samaritans had often been the greater offenders. Of all people not to have to love, the Samaritans should have topped the list, even for Jesus. On the flip side, Out of all three characters coming down the road, the Samaritan is the only one justified in not stopping to help. No one would have expected him to. No one would have wanted him to. And yet, I doubt that the Samaritan was an exception among Samaritans. I suspect he was like his peers, raised with the same biases toward Jews and fears for his own safety and seeking his own justification of who was and who was not his neighbor. He was likely someone who had acted differently than this in the past, speaking poorly of Jews, excluding them, harming them even. But in this moment of proximity, when another human's need came into his line of sight, his choice was not made out of justification or bias or fear. It was made out of love. He had compassion on the man and he acted. In the Samaritan's shoes, we are invited to think about how we are to act now. Whatever we've done before, we can change. Whatever our identity says about us doesn't have to be our whole story. What matters is how we can be a neighbor now. What will we do to show love? Jesus, Crystal clear point in this whole parable, which landed with both the lawyer and all others listening that day and today, is that when we ask, who is my neighbor? His answer will always be everyone, every one. If we're trying to figure out who we can technically exclude because surely there is someone we don't have to love, Jesus' answer is no one. His parable gives us the example of the worst possible person to have to love, a Samaritan. But it wasn't who he was that made him a neighbor, it was what he did. This story calls us to many things. Each character invites us to examine ourselves differently. Are we asking genuine questions or are we more concerned with justifying ourselves? What are our biases and blind spots? What do we think about other people that we're not even aware that we think? What are we afraid of when it comes to loving a neighbor? And in the moment, what are we going to do? Will we ask, what will happen to me if I am compassionate? Or what will happen to them if I am not? Ultimately, the parable is a call to action. Jesus ends the conversation with the lawyer by saying, go and do likewise. Go and do. He doesn't say, think about this some more or continue studying the law for more details. Go and do. Love is a verb. It is enacted. It is seen when we do something to show it. It may not be as dramatic as tending to a wounded person on the side of the road, but there is a deep need for love in every nook and cranny of this world. There is someone in your life this week. I don't know who it is. Maybe you do, or maybe you don't yet, but I suspect you will know it when the moment is right. Someone who needs a neighbor to love them and who is your neighbor. Every day, we have the choice to step across to the other side of the road and keep walking by. But the call of Jesus in his greatest commandment is to step toward and reach out a hand. Will you pray with me? God of love, we hear in your word that to love our neighbor is to love you. On the road that we walk in the days ahead, wherever it may take us, may we see those who need a helping hand, whether they are like us or unlike us, whether they have much or little, whether we think they deserve it or we believe they don't. Challenge our ears to hear your answer when we ask, who is my neighbor? Give us courage to overcome our fear, grace to correct our biases, and wisdom to ask questions from love, not from pride. We love because you first loved us. And for all the ways we don't deserve it, you love us anyway. With humility and gratitude and joy, and in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.